Continuing on in John, let's turn to John chapter 8. Father, I pray that you will uh, speak through me today, wear me as a coat, and that your word will come through, not mine. And may, Lord God, you touch our lives as we look again afresh at the life of Jesus. Hallelujah. John chapter 8, and we read in verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stood uh, down, stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman, with, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said to them, no, she said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Some people in their Bibles might see that in brackets or in uh, italics or even in the footnote. Because most scholars believe that this is an insertion that this isn't written by John himself, but has been inserted slightly later. However, most would also agree that it's authentic, that it really is something, an episode from Jesus' life. So it wasn't necessarily originally in the Gospel of John, but it is an episode of Jesus' life that's been inserted into the text. And it gives us something of the character of Jesus. It reveals about him how he dealt with religious people, but also how his heart of compassion was toward those who were in less fortunate circumstances. The situation is once more in the temple courts. You remember we were talking about the fact that Jesus was up in Jerusalem last week. He wasn't there last week. We were talking last week about the fact that he was in Jerusalem um, and that he would come up for the feast and that he was there teaching and he was having this dialogue going on with the religious people and, and people were trying to work out who he was and so forth. And Jesus, is the setting for this is again in the same temple courts where Jesus is teaching the people. And the crowd is gathered around him. And while he's teaching, lawyers, never trust lawyers, uh, and Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery. I hope no one's a lawyer here today. (laughs) (laughs) They bring in this woman caught in adultery. Quite where the man is, of course, who must have also been caught in adultery, because you can't have adultery on your own very easily. Uh, Where the man is, we're not told. But they stand her in front of Jesus, and in front of everyone who's gathered. And this, this must have been totally humiliating for this poor woman. They identify her crime and her punishment as detailed in the law. Actually, the law that's referred to is Deuteronomy 22.22, which says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, 
Then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you should purge the the evil from Israel. Notice that the law doesn't actually say that she should be stoned. That's just the tradition that had come about over the years. And of course, that is still the way that such situations are dealt with in some Muslim, Muslim countries even today. Shocking though it might be. The purpose of the lawyers and the Pharisees in bringing this woman to Jesus is to try and trap him. It says clearly in the text. You see, if he affirms the law, as written, he's stepping beyond his role because it was up to lawyers and Pharisees and teachers to interpret the law. But if he, if he says, spare her, he'd be condoning her action and would thus be approving of a more relaxed moral standards in the society of the time. So they're trying to trap him between these two things, overstepping his authority or condoning what she has done. Jesus doesn't answer them immediately. What does he do? He stoops down and writes in the dust with his finger. We can only speculate what he was writing. However, from the text it shows clear, they're pressing him for an answer. They're not letting, letting it go. They keep on at him. Come on, come on. What, what's the answer then? What would you do? What do you think the law is telling us to do with this woman? They keep questioning him. Rising up, he simply says that the one without sin should cast the first stone. And by this, he's not saying the one who is perfect is able to cast the first stone. But the one whose conscience doesn't condemn them of any similar such sin. And following this, he just bent down and continued to write into the dust until one by one the accusers melted away. And it says starting with the older ones. The older ones, hopefully, hopefully, have more wisdom and they think, hmm... Not, not going to get caught with this one. Better not be, be here. Or more skeletons in their cupboard. Yeah, or more, yeah, that's quite right. Perhaps the older ones have got more skeletons in their cupboard. Either way, they start melting away one by one. What we see of Jesus is, in dealing with this woman, his purpose is not to bring condemnation, but to bring restoration. And that's Jesus' heart. Not to condemn, but to restore He doesn't acquit her of her sin, but he rather instructs her to continue, not to continue to sin. And so he gives her the opportunity to amend her life. And in one stroke, he's dealt with the public case against her. Nobody, again, will bring further accusation. He's dealt with it. He's dealt with her public shame. But then he deals with her on a personal level. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's given her every opportunity to change. The rest is up to her. The first thing to consider when we come to this story is the ethical problem it presents us with. As someone has said, in those days people committed adultery and got stoned. These days people get stoned and commit adultery. The standards of the day were different to our own standards. And whilst few would condone adultery, even today, I'd suggest it's part and parcel of modern living. It's portrayed in our soaps and practiced in our towns and cities. 
I was looking at the Beverly Advertiser yesterday, and my eye caught the personal column. And there were advert after advert of people saying, um, looking for relationship, no strings attached, married or single, doesn't matter. It's shocking. This is blatant. This is blatant adultery going on, commonplace in our society. It's not something hidden. It's something out there and overt. And people are looking for it. Have a thrill in relationship. Completely different situation to this uh, society in which this this event happened. If not physical adultery, virtual adultery takes place widely in the form of pornography in all its forms. The ease of access and availability of pornographic images of all sorts is rife. And all of this adds to the moral morass in which we find ourselves. And whilst looking at a few images may not be be considered harmful by some, in fact it is harmful, it damages us. It generates the demand that leads to this industry being rife and in turn fuels the sex trade. It devalues the meaning and experience of real intimacy. And it does damage to our souls, to the soul of the one partaking. It can damage relationships with the opposite sex thereafter by objectifying the other rather than seeing them as a person. Looking at porn isn't innocent, isn't just a bit of fun. It's dangerous and damaging because it ruins and damages our soul. The statistics are out there for anyone who wants to take a look. How does Jesus deal with this moral question? Does he turn a blind eye and just consider it to be part of the human condition? I don't believe this to be the case. In Matthew 5.27 he tells us that it's even wrong to look at a member of the opposite sex in the wrong way. That he says it's to commit adultery in our hearts. And this of course brings a challenge to all of us. None of us are immune to this. Oh, how I long for modesty in our society as it's practiced in cultures such as India. But all around us, there is temptation. There is the possibility. And we have to guard our souls continually and guard our eyes from what we feast on. The reality is that God cares about the condition of our soul. The guy guidelines in scripture are not there to bring us into condemnation they're there to restore us to be all that he we should be misuse of the gift of sex will damage our soul this is why jesus intention with the woman is not to condemn her and add to her guilt and shame and public humiliation rather it's to restore her he deals with her public accusers and then in grace he deals with her private guilt Sending her away without condemnation. Why? Because he wants her to change. He wants her to be in the place where she can be all that God created her to be. That that image can be restored within her. That the damage caused by wrong things in her soul can be fixed. And that she can be that which he has in his heart for her to be. And that's his desire for each one of us. It's not that God is a killjoy. It's that he knows what's good for us and what is bad for us. And he wants us to live accordingly, that we might be all that he has in his heart for us to be. Jesus' response should shape our own response to those whose lifestyle includes activities that are not condoned in scripture. 
I believe the right response is not to say that these things don't matter. To accept society's values. To see such morals as Victorian and no longer relevant. Parts of the church have taken this viewpoint and are struggling with the consequences of it. Rather, our response should be to receive all who come to us with grace. However, in that grace, somewhere there is also challenge. Not to condemn, but to help people understand that there is a better way to live. That our lifestyle can either damage or help restore our soul. And this doesn't only go for sexual practice. This seems to be the one that's talked about more than any of the others in conversations with the world and so on. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul doesn't differentiate between these things from thieving, being greedy, drunk, slandering others, and swindling or cheating others out of their due. Whatever it is that we're participating in, it can cause damage to our soul. And the issue is not one sin over another. It's that that in all our ways we should pursue a path of discipleship. That our behaviour should flow out of kingdom values. And that we should allow the Holy Spirit within us to shape who we are and to restore us to the image of Jesus. So that we can become all that we were meant to be. Secondly, we're not here to judge the world. John has already stated in John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And our aim in dealing with the world should be restorative, just as Jesus' aim with this woman was restorative. We're not here to judge the world, to make them feel guilty. We're here to make known his grace, his goodness, and his love. The love of God poured out for all of us through Jesus. When people come into the church and become part of the community, then we have a responsibility to help them to walk as a disciple. And that may include changing lifestyles. However, as regards the world out there, we need to hold out the love of God, not the condemnation of God on on all people. And this is what the, the, the Deuteronomy scripture that was quoted in this passage is all about. The purity of God's people. There are different standards for those inside and outside the church. And our purity is not just for us as individuals, but but for the whole church, that we can become pure. A bride fit, fit and ready for when the bridegroom comes. This narrative has a powerful message. Christ has not come to condemn, but to forgive and transform lives. Strict adherence to a written code, quick condemnation and discrimination against women were not part of his message. And this brings us to point three. In the passage, Jesus didn't make a snap decision, but rather took a step back to consider an appropriate response before landing the killer killer blow. I love that. They're they're there pressing for an answer from him. And he doesn't respond, snap, 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 and give a quick answer he just stoops down and writes in the sand while he takes stock and while he thinks about how he's going to respond to this are we sometimes too quick to react in situations who's the one who speaks first and thinks afterwards anyone want to own up to that one (laughs) Sometimes words given in haste can take us where we don't want to go. 
and lead us into situations from which it's hard to retreat. And Jesus is our example here. Instead of reacting, instead of just coming straight back with the, with the uh, top of the head answer, he stooped down and he wrote in the dust of the ground. Don't be afraid to step back when you're being challenged, to take a moment to think. Don't be afraid to delay answering. It's something I've learned over the years and I'm still learning, especially when someone is trying to convince me of a specific course of action. It may appear logical on the surface, but may not sit right in here. And I've learned to say this, these, these words. Let me think about that one for a while. I'll come back to you. There's no harm in taking a moment to pause, to think, rather than to be driven into something that you're not ready to do. Livy, the Roman historian, said, All things will be clear and distinct to the man who does not hurry. Haste is blind and improvident. This isn't prevarication. Rather, it allows the voice of reason, the voice of conscience to be heard. And Jesus was a past master of it. He didn't allow himself to be flustered in the situation. He didn't allow himself to be driven into giving an answer that would condemn him. He took a step back. He thought. And then he delivered the most powerful uh, response that, that could be imagined. Finally, Jesus didn't have to bring condemnation on these religious bigots. Their own consciences condemned them. Even in that, he didn't stand up and stare them out publicly, like we might do. I'm watching you, I'm waiting for you to leave the room. I know who you are, I know what you've done. He doesn't stare them out. He allows their own conscience to convict them. Until one by one, they disappear. The world is full of bigots. You only have to see some some of the discussions that go on on social media to realize that. We may win our arguments with with our opinions, but we never win over a person by them. And this is something we all have to watch out for, I think, the way we express ourselves publicly. I know I do. I may have an opinion about everything, and I may not be afraid to express it. However, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. And I've sometimes been starting to write something, responding to someone and thought, that may not be the best thing to do right at this moment. Delete, 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 delete. Thank God for the delete button. And and the draft's folder. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. A great way of expressing something to somebody when they've written, uh, done something against you is to write them an email, but don't send it. <laughs> That's the voice of experience. The public domain is not always the best place to air our dirty laundry. I think we should be especially careful when we're expressing political opinion or making declarations about moral or ethical issues, because all of these things are emotive. And sometimes they can cause more disturbance and hassle that we hadn't envisaged that can actually uh, detract and destroy and divide and break up. 
So I'll finish with the words of Paul from Colossians 4.6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So this passage reveals something of the character of Jesus, especially his response to someone who is obviously guilty, but who has suffered public humiliation. It also shows his response to bigots. Let us be those who learn from the master in our dealings with all. Let us be those who speak, who seek to live lives of purity and holiness just as he do. And let us think before we act. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the great example that Jesus is. May we, we, we in all things seek to be like him, to live as he lived, to do the things he did and to live in the values that he gave us. We thank you, Lord. Amen.